Tonight's reading is from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You may be seated. Uh, We're continuing this series through the book of Mark. We're just a few weeks in here. Um, And I promise to get you done in time to eat your food, but tonight we have a preacher special. Your clock is broken and mine's not. So um, the kids will come back up here at six though. So you'll know it's six because they'll come up and they're not quiet. So, um, but before then we have some work to do in the scripture that Bo just read for us and more. We're actually covering Mark 2, verses 1 through Mark 3, verse 6. So we're covering quite a bit. I'm going to summarize quite a lot, and we're going to take a look at what we learn here. Last week, if you remember, we looked at how Jesus has authority over the physical and spiritual world, and then he asks us to follow him. He has the authority to ask us to follow him, and there's reasons he has that authority, and there's reasons that we should follow him. In Mark, we are looking for the real Jesus. I say the real Jesus on purpose because even people in the church can fall off the fence one of two ways when it comes to Jesus, and neither one of them are a full picture of who Jesus is. Some reduce Jesus to be an example, that we should just do what Jesus did and follow his example, the great man, the great preacher, the great healer, the great prayer and worshiper of God that he was. So some reduce Jesus to be an example. Some reduce him to just be a sacrificial lamb that dies in our place for sins. Both of these things are true. Both of these things are worth studying. We're going to see them throughout the book of Mark, and we see them throughout Scripture. But to think of him as just an example or just the sacrificial lamb that dies in our place is to reduce him to less than what the Bible says that he is. Tonight, as we take a look at this Scripture in these two different chapters, we're going to see five controversies that Jesus found himself in. As we read about these controversies, we're going to learn who Jesus was, what kind of king he is, and if he's a king, then what kind of kingdom is he the king of? As we learn about who he is, what kind of king he is, and what his kingdom is, we're going to be left with four questions. If we're paying attention, when we get to the end of tonight, we're going to have four questions, and I hope to throw those out there for us to contemplate and for the Lord to answer them for us. Would you pray with me to that end? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken through your word, through your spirit, and through your people. God, thank you for this great time of worship. What an encouragement to me to hear brothers and sisters singing to you. 
celebrating who you are, celebrating what you have done. God, you are worthy of our praise. Jesus, our Christ, Messiah, we pray that we would see you clearly here tonight. We would see what your kingdom is like and see what kind of good king you are. God, we also pray that you would show us that we are in need of spiritual and physical healing in our lives. God, show us who you are. Speak clearly to us in Jesus. We pray that we would see who you really are. Spirit, come and fill this place and take my humble words and use them for something that makes a difference in our lives and ultimately sees you praised. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 2, I'm going to read this section. Uh, If you grew up in the church, it might be a familiar story to you, but we're going to read it. Verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. A few observations about this story as we set the stage for these five controversies of Jesus. Jesus is attracting a crowd. It's not totally clear in the Greek whether this is his home or if he's just in his home area and it's someone else's house, but he is in a home and it's full. People can't get through the door. People are coming and standing outside. People are wanting to come and hear Jesus. We're clear that there are two kinds of people there listening to Jesus preach the word. First, there are religious leaders from every village in the area as well as Jerusalem. That's what we're told. So there's People from all over that are religious leaders. They're scribes, keepers, and writers, and transcribers, and teachers of the law. They're coming to hear Jesus. The second kind of person we know is there is fans. Fans. People that are fans of Jesus. They've heard about this Jesus. They think there's something to it. They think there's going to be a show. They think maybe he'll do a miracle. They think this teaching has a new kind of authority like we learned about last week. And so we have fans coming and wanting to hear from Jesus. Then this man is lowered down uh, with his friends. His friends lower him down through the roof so he can get to Jesus. And Jesus, the first thing he says to them is, your sins are forgiven. This is peculiar because the man did not come and confess sin. 
his problem was not necessarily connected to sin, though that was a, a major belief in the first century among Jews and Gentiles alike, that your physical condition or your physical lameness was tied to unconfessed or unknown sin in your life. So that was a connection going on at the time. But we aren't directly told that this man was coming to forgive his sins, yet Jesus says your sins are forgiven. This tells us a few things. First, he forgives his sins, and then he says, take up your mat and walk. The things we learn from this is first, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Jesus is there to heal physical pain and do physical good for people and change people's station in the physical world. But ultimately, the thing this man needs most is for his sins to be forgiven. It's our greatest need as humanity to be restored and made right with our God. We are also, we learn from this story, that our physical condition matters as well. Jesus forgives this man, but he also heals him, restores him, tells him to walk. He takes care of his physical needs. He could have just said, nope, I already met your biggest need. You're forgiven. You're going to be in my kingdom. You're in my kingdom now. You'll be in my kingdom in the future. You're fine being lame. But no, he restores his lameness. He brings restoration. And that's the third thing we learn. We learn about restoration. We see this word restoration used as Jesus heals people. This word restoration, there's a lot of things going on in this word. But one of the things it's talking about is something that's lame is restored to health. But that's not the only thing it means. Some are lame from birth or have an ailment from birth, not only in the first century, but now. And Jesus would restore them as well. So when restore is used in that sense, it's saying it's being restored in the way that it will be when all things are restored. At the end of all things, when the lame run with the animals in the kingdom come with our Savior in heaven. So this restoration takes place. This is a picture of the future restoration that will come. This future restoration and this momentary restoration are all made possible because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. This is how the physical and the spiritual are connected together. And Jesus is showing this in living color as he forgives this man and he also heals him. Next, verses 13 through 17 in the story that Bo read for us in the scripture reading, the call of Matthew the tax collector. So we just read through this, but if you remember what took place here, Jesus is walking by this uh, tax booth, is what they call it here, and this man named Levi is told by Jesus, follow me. And just like we read last week, he gets up, he leaves, and he follows Jesus. And not only that, but it says that Jesus was reclining at a table in the house with many tax collectors and sinners. They were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And the scribes and Pharisees have a question again. Listen to what they ask. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So first, we need to know why tax collectors and sinners are being lumped into the same group. 
two reasons. One, tax collectors were seen by Jews as sinners, and there were also other kinds of sinners reclining with the tax collectors and Jesus. So why were tax collectors considered sinners by the Jews? The reason is because tax collectors were getting taxes and they were giving them to King Herod, and King Herod was a puppet king that the Roman Empire put in place. So the tax collectors are Jewish men that are collecting taxes from Jewish people and basically just handing them over to Rome and they're keeping some for themselves. They're ripping off their own people to serve the puppet king that the Roman Empire has put there to be in charge of the Jewish people. Tax collectors were seen as unclean sinners and traitors. They were seen as worse than Gentiles that knew nothing of God. Because they had actually left their Jewish family, they'd left their Jewish place, and they had worked as a tax collector. Another thing that we notice in this story, as we continue to follow the story of Levi, is that Jesus gives him a new name. It's confusing because after we read for a little while, there's someone called Matthew, It's a disciple of Jesus. And then there's a whole gospel written by a guy named Matthew. This Levi was a Jewish man who Jesus called and he followed him. And then he gives him a new name. And that name is Matthew. This is the only instance in the gospels of a Jewish person having a Jewish name and being given a new Jewish name. Typically, if someone's name is changed, it's because they had a Gentile name and now they're given a Jewish name. But Levi, very Jewish name, it's one of the tribes, goes way back to the priests, but then he's given this new name of Matthew. The word Matthew means gift of God. Levi, as a tax collector, was seen as an unclean sinner. Why, when Jesus called, did Levi leave his profession, leave his way of making money, a lucrative position, and immediately follow Jesus to wherever Jesus was going? We can only speculate, but I think we can speculate that Levi, being ostracized by the people he came from, was neither loved by Herod, the Roman Empire, his family, or his fellow Jew. Levi was marginalized, isolated, lonely, and ostracized from his community. And he called, Jesus calls him, and he goes, and he follows. And then we're told that Jesus is reclining with not only Levi, but these other tax collectors and sinners. So it's not just one tax collector that Jesus is saving and giving time to and reclining with, but it's multiple tax collectors and sinners. And he's accused by the scribes and Pharisees of hanging out with these people that the Jews say are unclean. This language of reclining, it's a different word than we see when someone is just eating a meal with someone. In this culture, there was two ways of eating a meal. One was very proper, a more ceremonial meal that would be for like a wedding or a special occasion or a religious festival where you would sit and everyone would sit upright and sit around the table and it looked very much like a big dinner that you have family style. But this is not the language that's being used here. The language of reclining is reserved for a casual evening with family and friends. 
It is also the word that is used in the book of Revelation when it describes the banquet at the end of all things, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is really ticking the Jews off. Jesus is reclining at a banquet, a casual, friendly banquet with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus has just said, we looked at this last week, the end of all things is here. The time is fulfilled. He's proclaiming, I am bringing the kingdom. The kingdom has come to the earth because I'm here and I'm living and I'm teaching you these things. So the Jews hear him say, the kingdom of God is here. And then he's eating with tax collectors and sinners and reclining at their table. Let's go to the next section. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. The scribes and Pharisees, again, another controversy. They come to Jesus and they say, why aren't your disciples fasting? John the Baptist has disciples and they fast. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't they fasting to mourn their sin? Why aren't they fasting in order to worship God? This is Jesus' answer to their question in verse 20 of chapter 2. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and the worse, the tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, what's going on here? Jesus uh, first is talking about the bridegroom being taken away. Who's that? And then we have these two metaphors, these two word pictures. First, when he says the bridegroom is taken away, this is language for a prediction of who the Messiah would be. See, from the beginning of Scripture throughout the Old Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. The bride of God, the ones belonging to God. And he uses this language of being married to his people. Jesus here is saying, I'm God. I'm the bridegroom. I've come to bring, redeem, save my bride, the church, those who will follow me. And he's saying, eventually my disciples will fast to mourn and it's because I'm going to be taken away. Here in chapter 2, verse 20, we hear the first prediction, or should I say prophecy, because it comes true. It's not a prediction. I predict the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl this year. I might be wrong. This is a prophecy. and It comes true. It comes to pass. The bridegroom will be taken away. So we see it here for the first time in chapter 2, verse 20. He is predicting his own death. He's saying, one day I will leave and my disciples will weep and mourn. Then what about this business of the wineskins and the patch and all of that? I would love to go into the science of all of that, but I don't understand it. That's not the main point anyway. The main point of what Jesus is trying to say is that I've come and said the kingdom of God is here and I'm your Messiah and you're worrying about fasting and Sabbath and the law. 
You are trying, the Messiah is right in front of you. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. God himself is right in front of you. And you're trying to make him fit into your preconceived notions of who God and Messiah and the kingdom are. And it won't work. He gets very vivid with this in the next few verses. Another situation takes place where Jesus and his disciples are working on the Sabbath. They're collecting wheat for themselves and they're, they're eating of it as they walk through a field. And the scribes and Pharisees once again come to him and say, why are you working on the Sabbath? Verse 27 of chapter 2. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, you're fighting about the Sabbath. You're fighting about fasting. And I am Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm right in front of you. So often in the Old Testament, God's people are guilty of being so focused on themselves, so focused on the letter of the law, that they don't see God's love for them. God's law was always meant to show his holiness and give communion to his people. He's saying, you're fighting about the Sabbath, and I'm the one you're looking for. I'm right in front of you. You're trying to fit me into your Sabbath instead of realizing I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. We see in these stories, the Pharisees and the scribes watching to see when Jesus is going to slip up, and they can catch him. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read them for us. Mark 3. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Very clear what their intentions are here. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how they would destroy him. Again, <clears throat> the scribes and Pharisees are looking for Jesus to accuse him. Our community group, as we discussed this passage, it came up and we were started talking about how Jesus is offering them healing and salvation and rest. Not only are they not resting, they're watching Jesus closely because they want to accuse him. In verse 3, we read that Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. None of the English translations capture what this Greek word actually means, but the ESV translation of it is especially egregious because that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, come here. When you hear me say, come here, if I say, come here to someone, like right now, it would mean you would come up here and I would stand on stage and I would use you as a sermon example. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that to any of you tonight. That's not what Jesus said. 
I'm going to turn off. Jesus is the Messiah and he's more concerned with doing the will of the Father and healing the lame and saving sinners like you and me than living up to man's expectations and following the letter of the law or their man-made law. And what is the Pharisees' response? Here we are told for the first time they looked for an opportunity to destroy him. And we're told that they partner with the Herodians. What did we just learn in chapter 2? One of the reasons that people hated tax collectors is because they would take taxes from Jewish people and they would give them to Herod, the puppet king that Rome put in place. Now the Pharisees and scribes who hate Herod, who hate Rome go over to the Herodians, the ones that are fighting for and looking out for the interests of Herod and Rome, and they shake hands. And they say, now we can agree on something. We have to destroy that guy. Right in the middle that just healed someone in front of all of us. So, to summarize, what have we learned here tonight? Jesus has many fans, but few followers. In fact, now we have two groups of people in power that are trying to destroy him. Jesus fulfills the law. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the true fasting. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. That's a little bit about what he's getting into with the wineskin business. I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to add to the law. I came to fulfill it in your place. We learn that Jesus is rest and life. He is Lord of the Sabbath. We learn that the kingdom of God equals the presence of God. Wherever Jesus goes, there is his kingdom. Wherever the spirit is, that's where his kingdom is. Wherever we go, the spirit of God in his kingdom go. And Jesus shows us and tells us what the kingdom of God is like. Tonight, friends, if we're paying attention, we're left with four questions. The first, do you have faith in the only Savior? Let's go back to the first story that we read in chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic that is dropped down through the ceiling. He says, your faith has healed you. He is speaking to the man, but he is also clearly speaking of his friends who lowered the man down. It says here, again, an egregious English translation. It says they removed his roof. The proper word is dug. They dug a hole in his roof. 
There was quite a bit of mud that they would compact, and then the sun from the desert heat would cook it, and it would become as hard as concrete, where you could walk along the ceiling. They would pray on top of the ceiling. They could do anything on top of their houses, and there would be stairs to get up to the top of their house. This was a flat roof, and it was totally solid, and you could stand on it. These men dug through the roof to get to Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Do you have faith in the only Savior? Do you have faith that leads to works? Do you have faith that leads to determination to follow Jesus at all costs? Do you have faith that leads you to take the lame and the poor and the sick and those who are living a sinful lifestyle and say, we're getting to Jesus whatever it takes? Jesus' half-brother James would write in the book of James after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that faith without works is dead. Do we really have faith in the only Savior, the only one that can save us? Jesus offers his forgiveness to us as we are in the moment, not some future version of ourselves. Jesus doesn't say, Levi, give all the money back. You got to pay everybody back and then you can follow me. He says, follow me. And he immediately follows Jesus. That's how Jesus loves you and me. And then he calls us to leave our nets, to leave our toll booths, to leave our version of the law behind us and follow him. Do you have faith in the only savior? Next. How do you view yourself in others? If you've watched um, the modern day retelling of the Gospels, in, it's called The Chosen. Um, it's a really, I think, biblically faithful picture of what the real life of Jesus was like and what his disciples were like. The first time that Levi follows Jesus, Matthew follows Jesus, and he comes back to the disciples, Peter We saw him in the last chapter. He's already following Jesus. And as soon as Matthew walks in with Jesus, Peter like squares up on him. Like he is ready to punch him in the face because he's a tax collector. He followed Jesus immediately. He still looks like a tax collector. He was collecting taxes in the morning and then sees Peter, a devout, zealous Jew in the afternoon, and Peter wants to fight him. How do we view other people? And how do we view ourselves? The Jewish officials were looking to entrap Jesus instead of worshiping him as God. Jesus, it says he was angry here because he had compassion, but he saw their hardness of hearts. He saw their hardness of hearts. He saw that they weren't worshiping God. He saw that they weren't helping others and it made him angry. Jesus uses that anger then to heal and to help others. How do we view ourselves, and how do we view others? Do we view ourselves as someone who is sick in need of a doctor? Do we view ourselves as a sinner just like the people around us in need of a savior? Do we see ourselves as Levi, as Matthew, as the worst of all sinners in need of Jesus just like everyone else? Third, 
does Jesus have your time? Does Jesus have your time? I ask this because of how much Jesus talks about the Sabbath in chapter 2 and chapter 3 when they're accusing him of healing on the Sabbath, they're accusing he and his disciples of working on the Sabbath. And he says, you're missing the point. I am Lord of the Sabbath. They want to follow the Sabbath and they want to make other follow the Sabbath because they're so focused seemingly on the law of God, but more importantly, their law. One of the things Jesus is showing them is, hey, you know what? Even David, and his, when his men were hungry, he fed them on the Sabbath back in the Old Testament. You're going by the letter of the law and you don't understand what it's for. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You are spending your time making sure other people follow the law and follow the Sabbath instead of finding rest in me. This is not a new problem for the Jews. They had been struggling with this from the beginning of time when the law was given. Isaiah 58. Jesus holds, or God holds his people uh, accountable for using their fast, using their time of mourning, using the law for their own purposes. This is what he says, a true fast What if true Sabbath, what true worship looks like? Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient Ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. God is saying, You are following these fasts, and you're following the letter of the law, and you're following the Sabbath in order to gain something for yourself, even if it comes from oppressing other people. If you really knew me, You would be a part of something that's going to last and stand and everything you thought you were gaining by your human effort will just be freely given to you by me. And not only that, I'm going to give you enough that you can share with others. I'm going to give you enough strength that you can break loose of your own chains, but then you can go and you can serve others. You can break the yoke off of others. You can undo injustices in the world. If you would just find your rest in me. 
Does Jesus have your time? <clears throat> we could go off on a tangent now and talk about how we don't really Sabbath. That's true. A lot of us don't really Sabbath and we don't understand the purpose of a Sabbath. But really what the Sabbath is to do is to remind you that the Lord owns every day. And we think we're resting on a Sabbath or on a day off and we're letting God work during that time. God's always working. He's always doing his thing in our world. He just invites us to be a part of it. So I'm not just asking if God has a 24-hour period in your life. I'm asking, does he have all of your time? Is everything that you're doing and everything you plan on doing because you want him to be a part of it and he owns every part of you? Matthew, Levi, immediately left his tax booth. His safety, his security, his way of making money, his way of any advancement, he left it behind to follow some guy, some carpenter, who said he was God. Does your time, does your life belong to God? Lastly, do you know that you're sick? Do you know that you're sick? In Mark 2, 17, Jesus says, I'm reclining, I'm banqueting with, I'm eating a friendly meal with tax collectors and sinners because the healthy, they don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. He's saying, I can actually heal and free these people from their life of sin or from their marginalization in the community or from their physical lameness. I can give them what they need. But first, they have to recognize they're sick. And he's giving the Pharisees a chance to see that they're sick too. Just like Jesus says the doctor doesn't come for the healthy but the sick, it's only the sick who can be healed by the doctor. It's only those who know I am sick and I am in need of healing. If you talk to anyone with a chronic illness, and I can speak a little bit into this, um, having chronic Lyme disease and going a little bit of time with no diagnosis, but people have gone much longer than me and some of you are still suffering from no diagnosis. But if you talk to someone that struggles with a chronic illness or uh, an undisclosed illness or something that there's physical signs of in their body or there's something going on with them physically, emotionally, mentally, but there hasn't been a diagnosis, you get to the point where you say, just tell me what is wrong. Tell me anything. I'm ready for the worst because right now I don't know what it is and that's worse than finding out that it's the worst. Before we can be healed... We have to have a proper diagnosis and we have to recognize that we're sick. Do you recognize that you're sick? The paralytic and his friends needed to know that there was no other hope of him being made well, being made right, of him ever running again on this earth. And they were convinced that maybe Jesus was the answer to his physical lameness. Some of you are trying to save yourself. 
you're starting to get a notion, or maybe you've known for a long time that something's wrong, but you think if given enough time, or maybe if you have enough faith, or if you find the right church, or you read the right religious text, or if you can overcome the obstacle that you're facing, or the difficulties you've come from, then finally you will be made well. Some of you are trying to save yourself. And it's time to just recognize that you're sick and you're in need of healing, you're in need of salvation, you're in need of God. And maybe God has been some far off being standing up in the clouds saying, come here, come here. You're like, I could never get up there or I can't see you clearly or I can't even hear the come here anymore. And he comes down into the midst and he says, come here. Everything we're learning about Jesus is showing us that God came down and he said, you're sick and I can heal you. We can stop trying to save ourselves and we can come to him and be saved and be healed. All of us are trying to sanctify ourselves. We're trying to make ourselves more holy. We're trying to get better. We're trying to overcome sin and all those are great things, but we won't really be better until we give up till we get a proper diagnosis and we get the proper doctor. And we see what God is trying to do in our lives and what his spirit is trying to do in our lives. It's only when we recognize we are spiritually lame that we can let Jesus restore us. We need a miracle. We need a miracle to be saved and we need a miracle to grow in our faith. We have patterns of sin. We have deep embedded suffering that we are not going to overcome with human effort. We need a supernatural healing and a supernatural work to be done. So, do you know that you're sick? You first have to recognize that you are sick in order to receive healing, in order to receive help in order to come to the only one that can make you whole, the only one that can restore you, the only one that can say, come here and truly do something about your sin, your suffering, your pain, the only one that can sanctify you, that can make you better, is Jesus. He says, come. Will you immediately get up and follow, like Levi, like the paralytic, and be healed of your sin, be healed of your lameness, and follow him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. It's a gift to even know we're sick. God, would you show us the true nature of our sickness? And that you are the only one that can save us. Jesus, I pray that first we would recognize that we are spiritually sick, separated from our Heavenly Father, and we're in need of Jesus. 
to be that sacrificial lamb, to die in our place. The Spirit's power to come in his resurrection power. Jesus, would you draw men and women and children to yourself tonight? Father, would you sanctify us, make us more like you. You have bought us, you have died for us, you have sent your spirit to live in us. We pray that you would continue doing that miracle and bringing that kingdom come to us so that we would more and more reflect you and we would receive part of the restoration that you have for us here on this earth. Jesus, for those that are physically lame, we pray for your healing here tonight. You would heal either in the snap of a finger and the word of your voice or through modern medicine or through a proper diagnosis or just saying enough and healing the lame here tonight. Jesus, we believe that you can do it and we trust in you. Jesus, encourage those that are suffering from chronic pain. Jesus, May we look to you to be our answer, our healer, our Lord, our Savior. Would everyone stand with me, please? Kids, too. (laughs) Receive this benediction, a paraphrase of Isaiah 58. Lord, the fast that you have chosen for us is to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. It is to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless and poor into our house when we see the naked to cover them up. Then you promise that your, our light shall break forth like the dawn and our healing shall spring up speedily. And our righteousness shall go before us and that the glory of the Lord shall be our rear guard. Jesus, we trust in your promise and your provision and we leave here tonight and we fellowship and break bread tonight. Jesus, with your name on our lips, God, we pray that we would share the love that we have received with one another as we eat with one another and as we go out from this place tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.